That's our prayer, amen? Not that you would hear from this anxious soul, but that you would hear from the holy God that we sang of this morning as we open his word. That is our goal. Turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua this morning as we continue, as Dave said, in the book of Joshua, chapter 5. You know, words, words can have many meanings to people. Imagine if I was talking to a man who lived in, in 1875, and I told him that I loved my wife because she is hot. He might be perplexed as to why my wife's propensity to increase in temperature is a good reason to love her. Imagine if I told someone living in 1985 to hand me my phone so that I can take a picture, that they wouldn't comprehend the connection between the phone and the ability to take a picture with it. Now, in both scenarios, would any of the parties be wrong in their line of thinking? No. In their given context, they can have a proper understanding of the meaning of phrases. Similarly, the command to fear God can prove itself to be quite complicated when we open our Bibles. You see, fearing the Lord is one of the most frequent commands in the Bible. But so is the command not to fear. We see ungodly nations in dread of the Lord while God's people stand confident. We also see God's people fearing the Lord and the nations standing bold in self-confidence. Some would say that fearing the Lord brings condemnation and guilt upon the believer. And others say that it brings great joy. As we've studied the book of Joshua the past few months, we've talked a great deal about the fear of the Lord. And I must confess that, that it is an incredibly important topic in fact, John Murray, he once noted this. He said that the fear of God is the soul of godliness. It's a good quote. That the fear of God is the soul of godliness. If that is true, when I look at my life, when I look at the life of our church and, and the greater evangelical culture at large, I don't believe that we can consider what it means to fear the Lord and its ramifications enough. This theology of the fear of the Lord must constantly be on our hearts and our, and our minds, and it's going to constantly be throughout the book of Joshua. So my main point this morning is this, that when we truly fear the Lord, we respond in faith and receive God's greater blessings. When we truly fear the Lord, we respond in faith and receive God's greater blessings. So with that, this morning, please turn in your Bibles to Joshua 5. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after that had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. 
For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. I was talking with Matt and Dad yesterday, um, and I, I did say that I, in many respects, I'm grateful that, for our commitment to preach verse by verse through the Bible, because if I were a guy who just picked and chose passages of Scripture to preach each week willy-nilly, I would not ever choose this passage. I'm just, just going to be honest. Um, so I, I'm grateful that the, that the Lord has put this before us this morning, this, this sort of, you know, of course, little chuckling and giggling sort of passage. But I do believe that, that, it, that in its context, it, it has a, a great deal to tell us this morning. So, so may, we, may we lean into that. And of course, the context that you might remember from last week in chapter four is this, that the, the Lord parted the Jordan River so that his people Israel could cross into the promised land. They did. Every last Israelite crossed over into the promised land. But then at, at the end, do you remember why the Lord said that he parted the Jordan River? Why? So that the whole earth would know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Why? So that they would what? So that they would fear, they would fear the Lord. You see, the Lord desired that all the earth would know that his hand is mighty. And his desire is that his covenant people would fear him in a godly manner. Well, see, the inhabitants of the land, they got the picture. They got the picture. They saw what the Lord did for Israel. And the text tells us that their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. In fact, they're described nearly the same way that, that Rahab describes her fellow pagan citizens of Jericho back in Joshua 2.9. I know it's been a few months since we were in that passage, but you, you might remember that she described the people of Jericho as their hearts melting as well as they considered Israel approaching. They were in pure dread of the Lord, which is interesting because no army had marched towards them or raised a sword to do battle with them, but they knew of Yahweh's favor upon his people, and they knew that they did not stand a chance. Therefore, they were weak, disheartened, and crushed by the Lord's presence as we will see in future chapters, none of these nations turn to the Lord. None repent and follow Yahweh. Other than a few select people, these nations stand in hard-hearted terror before Yahweh as his enemies. Point one this morning. Godly fear responds by faithful obedience. Godly fear responds by faithful obedience. See, there's a difference, friends, between ungodly fear and godly fear. The fear that we see mentioned in this first verse in the nations, it is an example of ungodly fear. 
In fact, the Hebrew word for melt, as it says their, their hearts melted, this Hebrew word for melt is, is almost explicitly used to refer to the judgment of unbelievers throughout the Old Testament. You can take note of that. For instance, speaking of the coming judgment of the unfaithful Israelites in, in Jerusalem in Ezekiel 21 verse 7, the Lord says that every heart will melt because of his coming judgment. Similarly, you can write down this verse as well in Isaiah 19.1. It says that the idols of Egypt will tremble at the Lord's presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Such a fear of a heart melting is a form of judgment from God. It is a fear that flees from the presence of the Lord. It, it is a fear that rebels against him. It is a fear that does not see the Lord as good does not see the Lord as loving, does not see the Lord as merciful. It simply sees God as a tyrant in the skies bent on the destruction of man. And such a man is described in Psalm 112, verse 10. In fact, go ahead and turn to Psalm 112. We're going we're gonna to be there quite a bit this morning as well. I think, you'll, I think you'll find this interesting. At the very end of Psalm 112, we're going to cover most of it today, but at the end of Psalm 112, we see how the wicked man responds to the godly man. What does it say? How does it describe him? He is angry. He gnashes his teeth and he melts. There's that word again. He melts away. We see that the, de the desire of the wicked, they will perish. Yet, contrast the wicked man with the godly man in the first part of Psalm 112. What do you see? Well, the first way that he is described is as one who what? Fears the Lord. He is one who takes great delights takes great delight in the commandments of the Lord. He, he doesn't obey out of dread or even out of duty. He delights in obeying the Lord. Let's skip down to verse 7. He, he is not afraid of bad news. In other words, friends, his heart is not melting away. Instead, it is firm, and he is trusting in the Lord. Verse 8 says that his, that his heart is steady and that he will not be afraid. Be afraid of what? The Lord? No. Be, be afraid of anything else. He has nothing to fear as the Lord will certainly triumph over his enemies. Yet we must not forget why the godly man fears the Lord. We see this if we go back and look at the very first three words of Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why would one praise the Lord, friends? Why would they genuinely praise the Lord? Because they rightly see him as he is. He has an accurate understanding of who God is. That's what happens when you see the Lord. You, you gaze upon the Lord and he causes us to both rejoice and tremble before him. As I said last week, to fear the Lord is to treat the Lord as he is. Not just externally, but internally as well. And we must note that the man who fears the Lord always responds in joyful obedience to the Lord. Show me a man who is walking in unrepentant disobedience. I'll show you a man who has no fear of the Lord. I'll show you a man whose affections for the Lord are dull and apathetic. Show me a man who walks in repentant, not perfect obedience, but repentant and joyful obedience before the Lord. I'll show you a man who fears the Lord and loves him. In fact, this is exactly what we see from the Israelites starting in Joshua chapter 5, verse 2. You see, the Israelites, they have seen the glory of the Lord. They have seen the provision of the Lord. And it, 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 is, it has provoked 
both a joyful and a steadfast confidence in the Lord, but also a deep fear of the Lord. And I want, I want us to notice how they immediately respond in light of God's glory. How do they respond? They respond in faithful obedience. Here in verse 2, we, we see that the Lord called Joshua to circumcise the sons of Israel, it says, a second time. Now, now the, the Lord wasn't calling those who had originally been circumcised to be circumcised again. It, it doesn't work that way. Instead, the Lord was calling the Israelites to resume the act of circumcision as they did before. See, circumcision, it, it first comes into the life of Israel as God creates the covenant of circumcision with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis 17, God reiterates the promise to Abraham that he would multiply his line greatly and that he would make a great nation from him. It is in Genesis 17, friends, where, where God changes Abraham's name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. God tells Abraham in Genesis 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and, and kings shall come from you. In other words, God revealed to Abraham that there would be something unique about his offspring that were different from all the other offspring in the world. God would work uniquely through the physical seed of Abraham to bring himself glory. Ultimately, we see that, that circumcision was a physical sign of the covenant on the instrument of bringing about offspring through procreation. You could say that the male organ was made distinct through circumcision because the offspring produced from it were distinct. And so Abraham, in Genesis 17, he obeys the Lord and is circumcised at age 99. <laughs> Not only that, but all the males living in his house were circumcised as well. We see this practice continued all throughout the life of Israel. You see, God's intent was that the Israelites would circumcise their sons on the eighth day. There was something else to consider of note in God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, found in verse 14. The Lord God says, Any un uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You see, in, in this point in the life of God's people, circumcision was an act of faithful obedience. To not practice circumcision was essentially to deny the faith. It was to willfully not trust in the promises of God. This context will help us better understand what happens in, in Joshua 5. In Joshua 5 verse 3, we see that Joshua obeys the Lord and circumcises all of the sons of Israel. When we get to verses 4 through 6, we find that the reason that Joshua is providing us with a historical account of the circumcision of this particular generation we might ask, if circumcision was tied so closely to what it meant to be a part of the people of God and signified their faith in the promises of Yahweh, then what is so special about this group? Why are we honing in on their circumcision? Well, verses 4 through 5 tells us that all of the male Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt and then brought out of slavery by the hand of Yahweh, they were already indeed circumcised. However, it also tells us that the very generation who had been brought out of slavery, this circumcised generation, they died. The text tells us that the Lord did not allow them to enter into the promised land because they did not obey the voice of their Lord. Instead, they wandered through the wilderness, as we've, as we've talked about many times, for 40 years until they died. All throughout the book of Numbers, we see this generation acting as anything but the covenant people of God. Their attitudes, their grumbling, their idolatry, and their disobedience showed that they actually had no real conviction to follow Yahweh. Therefore, the Lord ultimately gives that generation over to their sin and does not allow them to enter into the promised land. Now, there were some faithful believers in that generation. Absolutely. The Lord 
all throughout the life of Israel has kept his remnant. But they were by and large faithless, godless, and unbelieving. This text does provide some interesting insights. First, the text does tell us that this generation who left Egypt was circumcised. Ryan, you've already said that. Here's the point. Externally, these were people who physically looked like Israelites. They were people who externally looked like they were keeping God's covenant to some extent. They were people who looked like they would have received the promised land. Yet, God's law wasn't primarily about external observance as much as it was about an internal love of God. How do we sum up the law, friends? Loving who? Loving the Lord your God, everything in you, and who? Your neighbor, self. It shows us that it is certainly possible, friends, to observe certain outward expressions of obedience, but have hearts that are far from God. It is possible to have some semblance of an outward righteousness, but actually be God's enemy. Friend, are you banking on the fact that because your life looks put together, that you are actually a Christian? Is your hope on how much money that you give to this church? On the fact that you attend services every Sunday? Are you placing your hope on the way that your kids turned out? Are you placing your hope on your diet? Are you placing your hope on the fact that you grew up in a Christian family? Are you placing your hope on the fact that you have a Christian spouse? Are you placing your hope in the fact that you go to a healthy church? See, while all of these things might be good, it is very possible to have an outward facade of righteousness, but have a heart that is completely indifferent to God. See, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus didn't say few. Jesus said many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Let me translate. Here's the translation. Jesus, I did a bunch of stuff for you. Jesus, I I looked outwardly righteous. What does Jesus say to such people? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, my heart is genuinely burdened for such people. Genuinely. People who are deceived. They're deceived. They have no love for the Lord. Yet they spend their lives playing church. Like the unbelieving Israelites who are not allowed to enter into the promised land, you will never see glory unless you trust in Christ. Friend, that is you. Let me lovingly encourage you to repent of your apathy towards the Lord and put your hope fully in Christ today. We might also notice from the text that our lack of obedience is typically indicative of a heart that doesn't love the Lord. How do we see this from the text? Well, we must remember that the Israelites were to perform circumcision on the eighth day of birth in observance with the law. Therefore, the act of circumcision wasn't an act of faith of the circumcised, but an act of faith from the parents bringing forth their son to be circumcised. Well, verse 7, it tells us 
that the unbelieving generation did not circumcise their son. The unbelieving, grumbling, disobedient, not following, apathetic towards God generation did not circumcise their sons. In other words, their lack of obedience was in perfect harmony with their lack of faith. They didn't truly care about the glory of God. They didn't truly care about being set apart. They didn't truly care about righteousness. They only cared about the carnal things of this world. They chased idols. They profaned God's name. They simply lived out what was true of their hearts. However, the text also points out that the opposite is true. Those who truly love and fear the Lord respond in obedience. This is evident as we, as we consider how Joshua and the Israelites responded to God's call here. Consider this, that the Israelites had just crossed over into occupied land. You see, as we've already mentioned, they didn't do this covertly. They didn't just sneak into the land. There were several million Israelites that just crossed over into the land. Every single one of the surrounding nations saw this wandering nation cross the Jordan. Every single one of these surrounding nations felt threatened by Israel's presence in the land. You get, you get the picture here. You see, I can imagine how in that moment, how strange it must have felt being an Israelite. It could have probably felt like we were storming the, the beaches of Normandy. And approaching, you know, you're seeing Saving Private Ryan and coming in those boats. And you know there, there's, there are tons of enemies up in those hills. You know, they were entering into a land that they've, they'd never seen. An army, and about to face armies that, that they'd never seen. Can we just confess for, for one moment that that would have been intimidating? To a certain extent, as they crossed into the land, it could have probably, they probably would have felt like sitting ducks. Not only that, but right before they are going to overtake the land by fighting battles with, with the natives of the land, the Lord stops the Israelites right in their tracks. Doesn't he? And the Lord says, before we take the land, command all of the Israelite males to be circumcised first. All of them. Translation, the Lord was calling the Israelites to do a minor surgery on every male in Israel on the most sensitive part of their body. Now, I am no Sun Tzu, nor have I completely read the art of war, but this would not seem like the best military strategy to me. We see that this was actually a big deal because Joshua notes in verse 8, that they actually had to stay in their camp until all the men were healed. After they obeyed, in, in verse 9, the Lord said, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. In other words, I do not see you like I saw your fathers. Unlike them, you are a generation that trusts me and walks in obedience. See, this current generation saw God stop the Jordan, and they took it to heart. They feared the Lord. They loved the Lord. They trusted the Lord. So even when God's call for obedience didn't seem like it made much sense from a human perspective, they knew that they could trust the wisdom and the might of the one who had just rolled back the waters. God had proven himself faithful over and over and over again. And so God's character, it moved them to action. Verse 10 even tells us that they also obeyed the Lord by keeping the law and celebrating the Passover feast. In fact, the text tells us that they did this in the plains of Jericho. Again, can you imagine how much courage and trust in the Lord that this took? To have a feast in the plains of your enemies. This is what true faith looks like. Friends, while we are not saved by our works, true faith always works. Always. Those who truly fear the Lord, they live like it. 
They don't outwardly say that they fear the Lord with their mouths and are not moved to action at all. They respond in obedience even when they're uncomfortable. They respond in obedience even when it doesn't make sense. They respond in obedience even when it could cost them something in this life. They respond in obedience, as we see in Joshua, even when it might bring temporal pain. Why? Because they love and fear the Lord God more than they love and fear the world or other people or not getting what the flesh wants in this life. See, James says it clearly, brothers and sisters, faith without works is dead. It's not true faith. It is not saving faith. It is not admirable faith. It is a dead faith. I'm reminded of the parable of of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. You see, Jesus in Matthew 25, he, he tells the story where a master gives the servants three different amounts of talents to steward, three different servants. The first two servants take the talents and they make a profit. The master is pleased. The third servant takes his talent and he buries it in the sand. Why? The interesting thing is that he says that he feared his master. That's the reason. I'm, gonna, I'm, sum, I'm summarizing. It's not verbatim, but that's what he's saying. Is that I feared the master. He, he said he feared losing the talent altogether. He verbally proclaimed a fear. But the master calls the servant a wicked man. He basically says, if you really did fear me, you would have been moved to action. The master says that such a man deserved to be cast into the outer darkness. You want to see what faith without works looks like? Go to Matthew 25. It is a type of faith that can boast about the fear of the Lord without truly fearing him. Show me a man that fears the Lord, and I will show you a man who walks in obedience. Now, much more could be said about circumcision, but there is one thing I I want to address here. Circumcision was an outward expression to signify God's old covenant people, the Jews. We are no longer under the law and are not required to be circumcised. And in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.19 that neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but instead, obeying God. That's what Paul says. That's Paul's concern, obeying the Lord. In the Old Covenant, as I've already said, the Israelites were meant to be circumcised. However, just because you were circumcised did not mean that you were a part of the elect. There were physical Jews who were not true Jews. There were Jews who were not truly children of the promise. There were those who partook of circumcision who are in hell. In the new covenant, however, all of God's elect are marked. They aren't marked by a physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. They have been marked by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They have hearts that love the Lord. They have hearts that repent of their sin. Every person who has the Holy Spirit then is a member of Christ's church. They are saved. They are a part of the elect. Yet, Jesus calls his disciples to do something else as an external sign as well. He calls his church to participate in believers' baptism. See, as circumcision was meant to be an external sign of being set apart as God's people, believers' baptism is the external sign of following Christ and the new covenant. Friend, if you you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, 
and have refused to be baptized, can I lovingly encourage you to obey your Lord and go public with your faith? Do you know that a failure to submit to Jesus in this arena is to walk in willful defiance to your Lord? Not only that, but Jesus tells us if we are ashamed of him before man, he will be ashamed of us before the Father. We take those words serious. As we read the Bible, we see this, that God doesn't play. God doesn't mix up his words. He means what he says and says what he means. This doesn't mean that baptism saves you. It means that those who are saved should desire to honor King Jesus through baptism. They desire to publicly declare who Jesus is and what Jesus did for them. See, a failure to obey Jesus in this area potentially says, potentially says a lot of bad things about the state of such a person's soul. Friend, fear the Lord. Walk in obedience. This is what Christians do. In light of who Christ is and what he has done, they respond in faithful obedience. Point two, godly fear results in blessing. Godly fear results in blessing. See, there's a, there's a misconception about the fear of the Lord among many Christians. They believe falsely and ignorantly and even arrogantly that fearing the Lord, it brings guilt. That fearing the Lord, it brings judgment, it brings insecurity, and it, and, it, and, it, and it brings a wrong view of the Lord. Oh, reject such notions. Reject such faulty and godless and unbiblical theology as that. Reject it. They believe that it creates a hamster wheel where we can never do enough to please God. However, when we understand a proper fear of the Lord correctly, we'll find that such a characterization couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, we'll see that fearing the Lord, friends, hear me, it always results in blessing. Always. In verses 11 and 12, we see that after the Israelites obeyed the Lord through circumcision and and they obeyed the Lord in partaking of the Passover meal, don't miss this, they ate the produce of the land. They ate the produce of the land. They ate unleavened cakes and parched grain. Don't miss the significance. God had faithfully provided manna every day for his people to eat while they wandered through the desert for 40 years. God certainly preserved his people. He provided for his people. However, that unfaithful generation, as I've mentioned many times, would not enter into the promised land. They would never taste the milk and the honey promised to Abraham. They would never ultimately get to experience the true promises and blessings that God offered to the nation because of their disobedience. However, because this generation trusted Yahweh and feared his name, they ate the fruit of the land. They ate the fruit of the land Can you imagine how sweet this must have been? See, for 40 years, many in that generation ate manna every day. I mean, like I'm 38. I just turned 38 last Sunday. Think of my, the existence of my whole life. That's that's eating. You see, they dreamed of the day when they would finally get to the promised land. They dreamed of the cisterns. They dreamed of the vineyards and the olive trees and the milk and the honey. They dreamed of the day that the Lord promised where they would eat and eat and eat until they were full. You see, after decades of wandering, they were finally at home in their land. 
They got to experience just how good and delightful that God's blessings truly are. As they ate each piece of produce, they were reminded of how good Yahweh really is. They saw this, that that God is a promise keeper. He is faithful to his own. When he says he will do something, he fully delivers. Contrast this generation with the previous unfaithful generation. See, the Lord allowed them to see the goodness of the land. Remember in the book of Numbers? It was every bit as good as Yahweh promised. However, when they sent spies into the land, they refused to take the land because they feared the people of the land more than they feared God. They did not trust God. Therefore, they received the judgment of God. Yet, there is always blessing in rightly fearing the Lord. Always. Circle back to Psalm 112. What is the first word that is used to describe the man who fears the Lord in verse 1? Blessed. Blessed. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Can you cling to that promise this morning, friends? Blessed are you who fear the Lord. How is the God-fearing man blessed? Well, verse 2 tells us, that his offspring would be mighty in the land. Verse 3 tells us that wealth and riches are in his house. Now, it must be said that in this time in Israel's history, there was a connection between obeying the Lord and financial and physical and familial blessing in the promised land. If the old covenant people obeyed, they would live long, wealthy, and peaceful lives. If they disobeyed, the Lord would bring about judgment for them. However, today, friends, in the, in the new covenant, we are never promised financial or physical blessings if we obey the Lord. We are never promised financial collapse if we disobey the Lord. See, our blessing isn't found in our performance. Our blessing is given to us free of charge in Christ. Not only that, but our blessing in this life isn't physical at all. Our Savior was homeless. He traveled around, slept in other people's homes, died on a cross. That's our Savior. See, our blessing isn't stuff. Our blessing is a person. Our blessing doesn't just come through Christ. Our blessing is Christ. And and our blessing is knowing Christ. In fact, Jesus tells us that there is a good chance that fearing the Lord in this life ends up making your life abundantly more challenging from an earthly perspective. You see, many Christians' lives are marked by suffering and persecution. Many Christians have died for their faith. Many marriages have ended because one spouse feared the Lord and the other didn't. Many jobs have been lost because the employee feared the Lord more than their worldly boss. However, hear me, friends, that having Christ is far more precious than anything this world has to offer. Period. So we see in Psalm 112 that it continues to describe this man who is blessed who fears the Lord. As this man fears the Lord, he he begins to become more and more like the Lord. See how he demonstrates the character qualities of God as as he fears him. In verse 4, we see that this man is is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Verse 5 tells us that he is just. Verse 7 tells us that he trusts the Lord. His heart is steady and firm. He gives freely to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. You see, such a man who fears the Lord isn't overly concerned with this life. 
His joy is not swayed when the stock market goes down because he fears the Lord more than he fears financial ruin. That's why he can give freely, not under guilt or condemnation to the poor. That's why he's generous. You see, he has peace when things in his life don't go as planned because he fears the Lord more than he fears missing out on the things that he wants in this life. That's why he's gracious and can conduct his affairs with justice. Do do you see that the fear of the Lord does something in his heart, friends? Fear of the Lord changes us. Do you see that the fear of the Lord results in obedience? It also results in great blessing. Friends, what what a joy it is to know the Lord and to fear the Lord and to obey the Lord and to be blessed by the Lord. See, in Acts 9.31, you don't have to turn there. You see, we see that the Lord blessed the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Why? Because They were corporately walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit that described the church. That describes his church. They feared the Lord, but were brought great comfort by the Holy Spirit. And the Lord continued to multiply them in Acts chapter 9. Will we be a church, Community Bible Church, Would we be a church that is characterized by our fear of the Lord? Would we? Would we fear the Lord more than we fear the culture? Would we fear the Lord more than we fear our careers? Would we fear the Lord more than we fear earthly insignificance? Would we fear the Lord more than we fear poverty or hunger? Would we fear the Lord more than we fear for our own lives? Would we fear the Lord as we parent our children? Would we fear the Lord as we engage in the workplace? Would we fear the Lord as we turn on our computer and our phone and our TV? Would we fear the Lord and make disciples of all nations? Would we fear the Lord and evangelize our city? Would we fear the Lord and seek the purity of our local body? Would we fear the Lord and dedicate our lives to the study of God's word? See, friends, there is great blessing in fearing the Lord. I know this because the Bible tells us so. In fact, heaven will be a place where those in Christ will fear him forever. See, when we get glimpses of heaven, we see it is a place consumed by the fear of the Lord. In Revelation 14, one of the angels commands creation to fear God and give him glory. In Revelation 15, another angel says, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? A voice from the throne of God said, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great, in Revelation 19. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, If we can learn anything of the state of heaven from Scripture, the love and joy that the saints have there, it is exceeding great and vigorous, impressing the heart with the strongest and most lively sensation of inexpressible sweetness, mightily moving, animating, and engaging them like a flame of fire. F.W. Faber wrote, And Father, when to us is in heaven, thou thou shalt thy face unveil. Then more then ever will our souls before thy goodness quail. Our blessedness will be to bear 
the sight of thee so near, and thus eternal love will be but the ecstasy of fear. Yet, heaven will not be a place of torment. It will be a place of rest. It will be a place of fellowship with Christ forevermore. We will perfectly fear him, but we will be with him, be loved by him, and reign with him. Can you imagine what that day will be like, church? Do you long for that day? Do you long for that day, church? Like the Israelites who tasted the blessings of Christ after years of wandering, one day we will be with Jesus after sojourning in this life. We will finally receive the blessing in fullness that Christ has promised us. We genuinely await that day. After this long and sin-filled life, we will be dressed in robes of white. After, after the discouragement and anxiety of the many decades of this life, we will have perfect peace with Christ. After many years of wandering astray, friends, we will never sin again. After countless ailments, we will never need to even rest again. After broken friendships and families, we will never experience disunity or brokenness ever, ever again. After years and years of grinding at work and never getting ahead, we will receive a mansion and a crown because of Jesus. And after, after never finding true fulfillment in the things of this world, we will never thirst or hunger or want again because we will be with Jesus. That is what awaits those who fear him. That is what awaits this church. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? Oh, aren't you ready for the Lord to come? Aren't you ready? This is what awaits those who fear the Lord. This is what awaits those who are in Christ. So Lord, help us. Help us to fear you. Help us, Lord. We need you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.